Why did this uh, gentleman cut the engine out of uh, his car and replace it with, with a horse? And yet I suspect the truth is that many churches, indeed perhaps most churches at times, are as preposterous as that picture. They maintain a sort of partial, outward resemblance of a truly Christian church. But uh, for one reason or another, the engine has been ripped out. Instead of the uh, sound of throbbing pistons and a car... Uh, and the church surging ahead. There's the sort of dull clip-clop of an old nag hauling an ungainly contraption down country lanes. It's certainly familiar to me. Why do churches get like that? Well, we could offer many answers, I think, in, in evangelical circles. The, far, the, the first answer, so often, is that um, churches that have uh, lost all, all power uh, are churches nearly always that have stopped believing the Bible. And that is certainly true. It is often a cause of uh, serious, even fatal decline in churches. But I have to say, I have seen enough lifeless churches, which on the surface at least least, um, appeared to believe the Bible, appeared to be teaching it faithfully. I think that's the only key. Amongst uh, evangelical Bible-believing churches as well, there's often another reason put forward for lifelessness, sometimes explicitly, actually more often implicitly. We are lifeless because um, basically we do things wrong. The solution is all practical. The church is lifeless because the music is bad or the pews are hard or the preaching is boring or the organisation is poor. And again, there frankly is um, uh, a lot of truth in, uh, in that. No merit in uh, church being poorly organised, antiquated or boring just uh, um, for the sake of it. It often damages the life of churches and church leaders rightly take a lot of interest in making sure that churches do run well. But I'm worried about that danger. I I see again and again churches in our sort of tradition thinking that that is the key solution. Ministers flock, you know, to the latest conference that tells them how to, uh, how, how to revolutionise the practical life of their church. And it is frighteningly true that actually a good and skilled leader who knows how to lead people can uh, grow a church, even in today's environment, frankly without any involvement from God at all. Now I want to dwell this morning on Luke's answer for why dynamic churches might become lifeless or to put it another way, Luke's way, why actually life can be breathed into a group of people so that they can change the world. 
Now the key thing, according to Luke, is not just that the word of God is taught to them. Though that is vital for Luke. You can't uh, read Luke's Gospel without seeing that the Word of God, the Word of God, the Word of God, again and again, is emphasised in Luke's Gospel. But interestingly, Luke finishes his Gospel with Jesus telling the disciples to stay exactly where they are. They shouldn't go anywhere because they're not ready yet. Luke is also actually interested in practical arrangements of churches. He records in Acts a lot how the churches made, made practical, pragmatic, strategic decisions about church growth. He wasn't ignoring that, but he didn't see that as the key issue. The issue that transformed God's people from well-taught but lifeless people into people who could change the world was the sending of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, uh, Luke is, is, is absolutely clear that all the practical considerations about how the church should run always came as a response to what the Holy Spirit was already doing. So let's not get the cart before the horse to mix that metaphor up even more. Luke is absolutely clear. The key is the Holy Spirit. Suddenly, when they were all together in one place at Pentecost, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. I want us to see what Luke says about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Just a few things, we could look at so much more, but just a few things that Luke says about God's Holy Spirit coming upon the first disciples, which transformed them into a group of people who changed the world. The first thing that we need to recognise as we come to the beginning of Acts is that the work of the Holy Spirit is the initiative of God from beginning to end. Luke uh, um, records Jesus saying at the end of Luke's Gospel, stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Or in in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, don't leave Jerusalem, wait for the gift my Father promised. They are to stay, they are to wait, they are wait to wait till God gives them the power that he chooses to give them. Meantime, their godly duty is to do nothing. Now, it is very important for us to recognise that the events of Pentecost were a a one-off and since that time, actually, the uh, the New Testament insists all Christians have the Spirit of God indwelling them. We've not perhaps been visited with tongues of fire or found ourselves speaking strange languages, but the Apostle Paul absolutely insists, for instance, in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit does not belong to Christ. So since this first moment in Acts chapter 2, we need to be clear that we're not called to stay, to wait, in quite the same way that the disciples were at the end of Luke's Gospel or the beginning of Acts. The gift 
has been given now, poured out on God's church. This was the beginning of that pouring out. And from now on, the fundamental New Testament command to Christians is to go. We need to remember that. I remember being told of a church in um, Wales which was in the habit of gathering people from a, a very wide area to pray for revival. But that church wouldn't discuss with its neighbouring evangelical church a strategy for reaching the city. And the New Testament gives no support for that sort of inaction. If you're a Christian here this morning, if this is a Christian church, then God's Spirit is in us, is amongst us, and is empowering us to go. But I want to say to you as well, we cannot read the New Testament. In particular, we cannot read the book of Acts without noticing that God continues to retain the initiative for progress in his church. The Holy Spirit, in Acts, goes before the disciples. He converts unexpected people. He, dis- he, he guides travelling evangelists. He empowers his people at particular moments. He, he causes churches to spring up. And sometimes, it has to be said, the Holy Spirit withdraws his help. Sometimes he humbles people. Sometimes he even lets churches die. The initiative is still fundamentally with God. And I have to say, if you've been around for the last uh, few months, I don't think our problem, our danger, is being too inactive. Poor old Emily was watching her watch and uh, hurrying us through because there is so much that we want to communicate, so much on Sunday mornings over the last uh, uh, few weeks and months that we have been uh, telling you about Activities that the church is involved in in one way or another. Our problem is not that we sit back inactively. So maybe our danger is that we will get so excited about what we can do that we will lose any interest in what the Spirit might say to us about what we should do and how the Spirit may guide us that we will stop actually really seeking the Spirit's empowering in our lives and in our life together as a church. Perhaps God is calling us at, at this moment in our life when we've been blessed in so many ways to be humble. It's been exciting to see the church growing. It was enormously exciting to me over the Christmas period to see how many contacts we have as a church who are prepared to come to one event or another and perhaps we need to be more deeply aware at this moment in our church life that we cannot move an inch, we cannot make an inch of real progress, we can organise a thousand things but we cannot make an inch of real progress except the Holy Spirit help us. The Spirit is not our plaything to manipulate as we will. 
He hasn't just left us to get on with it now. He is still sovereign. He still goes where he chooses to go. He still saves those whom he chooses to save. Wise Christians still seek his guidance and his help more than anything else. Perhaps a mark of that humility and dependence will be our prayer life, how you've had that um, presented to you this morning. What about our, our, um, our weekly Thursday morning prayer meeting, which is very exciting. You know, it, uh, the one thing they did do before the Holy Spirit came in power, Acts 1.14, the disciples joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. Everybody prayed constantly, we are told. This Tuesday, we have our monthly prayer meeting, first Tuesday. Will you, will you be there? Will you come? Will you go and pray with the Muhaba prayer meetings? In the church, we, we hope as leaders that the backbone of our praying together actually happens in home groups. But are we deceiving ourselves? What about your personal prayer life? Do you have the words of Jesus embossed on your heart? Apart from me, you can do nothing. This work that changes God's people and God's church from lifeless to world changing is the initiative of God. The second thing I want us to notice in uh, uh, this passage is that the Spirit the Holy Spirit, what he does fundamentally is he brings the presence of God. Now, it would have been entirely in keeping for me to say that Luke is telling us that the Holy Spirit brings the power of God because that's very prominent in the text at the end of Luke's Gospel again when they were told to wait. They were told that they would be clothed with power from on high in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 as well. Um, when they were told to stay, they were told, you will receive the power, uh, power when the Holy Spirit comes. And here again, in, in verse 2 of Acts chapter 2, Luke describes the arrival of the Spirit as a violent wind. Surely that is a show of power by God. But, but I want to say it slightly differently, and I want to say it differently for a reason. For one is, one reason is, that the tongues of fire are very significant in this passage and Luke carefully records them in order to remind us of something important in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when God comes down to his people, he commonly comes in fire. When God came to dwell in the temple after it had been built, the, the temple, we're told, was filled with smoke. When God came down to speak to Moses on Mount Sinai, 
Um, we're told in Exodus 19, verse 18, he descended on the mountain in fire. And crucially, I think, uh, when God led his people through the desert for 40 years, he did so in a pillar of fire. God visits his people, comes to his people in fire. And that's the point. When these tongues of flame come, God is coming. They are going to receive power because God is powerfully amongst them. And actually, in a new way, no longer do God's people see God as flames in the distance. No, these flames divide and rest on each individual. See verse 3? They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. This is extraordinary. Once Israel could say God dwelt near them. Now God's people can say God dwells in them, on them. The power that has been promised is bound up with a personal, intimate, indwelling relationship with God. And I emphasise that because I fear that often the Spirit's power is sort of treated as if it was raw power. People become obsessed with the certain manifestations of the Spirit, such as healing or, or um, uh, speaking in, uh, in miraculous tongues, as here. And they lose sight of the fact that the central way that the Spirit of God works in us is that he indwells us. He changes our hearts and transforms us. So that once, though we, once we hated God, but now we delight in God. Once we turned away from God, but now we turn to God and follow him. Once we sought anything but God, now we seek God as our greatest joy, our greatest delight, our greatest desire. That is the central miracle that God does in his people. And with that miracle comes power. That's what's happened to these, uh, the, these disciples. Yes, they have specific powers, as we'll see in just a moment, to speak in, in different uh, tongues. But uh, the key thing is that now their hearts are transformed so that they, they declare the wonders of God, it says, for instance, in uh, um, uh, verse 11. I long to be filled more and more with the Spirit, as Luke describes it. I long for myself to be found declaring the wonders of God. And when God is doing that amongst us, when God is doing that in us, there will be power enough. The Holy Spirit brings the presence of God to us. Vitally, vividly, relationally to each one of us. 
I don't know what your ambition is for, for uh, uh, 2007. I don't know what, what your reflections are on, on, on 2006. If it's anything like me, <coughs> there'll be lots of things, good and bad, happy and sad, moments of triumph, moments of real defeat. And as you look forward to the coming year, I'm sure there will be very specific concerns that you have. But let's let this be your greatest concern. Let this be your abiding concern. Let this be your fundamental concern. That God would indwell us by his Spirit and change our hearts and fill our hearts and empower us. The Spirit brings the presence of God. And then, says Luke, (coughs) the Spirit sends us out. That's clearly the significance of these different languages that they begin to speak. All of them were filled, verse 4, with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This gift of tongues, actually, is different from the gift of tongues, it seems to be anyway, that is spoken of in 1 Corinthians. If you know your Bible, you'll know that that, uh, Paul speaks about a phenomenon that was happening in Corinth at that time and that's received an awful lot of attention over the last generation or so. Well, those tongues in Corinth don't appear, as far as we can see, to be human languages at all, Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, for instance, speaks of the tongues of angels. But these tongues, these tongues uh, here in Acts chapter 2 are languages that are very intelligible. Verse 8, for instance, the people say, how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? This seems to be mainly a unique occurrence. There's no record of this sort of thing happening in the rest of the New Testament. There's very little record of it happening down through the history of the church. There have been some uh, 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 apparently near miraculous gifts of uh, language. We were thinking about the uh, Muslim world. Um, In the 19th century, uh, Henry Martin, a missionary to... um, uh, parts of the Muslim world, seem to have an extraordinary, almost miraculous ability um, with language. He translated the whole of the New Testament into Urdu and Persian in just a couple of years. But um, the full force of this first manifestation of the Spirit seems to be fundamentally a unique event to make a foundational point. God wants all people to hear the good news. These Jews and converts to Judaism were gathered from all around the world and now they heard the gospel in their own language. God was breaking down 
international barriers. Ever since the days of uh, the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, uh, the world had been divided into different languages and mankind had been divided and uh, all the nations except for Israel had been separated from God. But now, God is reaching out to all of those nations in their own languages. You know, that there's the first of hint of so much that has come to characterise God's church for the, two, for, for the next 2,000 years here. For instance, the nations didn't miraculously learn the language of the disciples. The disciples learned to speak the languages of the, of the nations because God's intention was for the gospel to go out into different national churches where they would worship in their own language with their, some of their own cultural distinctives, no, no, no doubt, not any longer bound by the culture and language that originally was the birthplace of the gospel. Muslims teach their converts Arabic and train their converts to conform to a certain Arab way of life. Christians translate the Bible into other people's languages. Allow it to be the seed for indigenous churches to grow up that are of all types and kinds throughout God's world. But those culturally and linguistically distinctive Christians are still united across God's world. These these people here are gathered together in Jerusalem, they are converted together, they are baptised together in the same water, later they will share teachers together, they will share actually resources together across those international barriers and in the cosmopolitan cities of the Roman world like uh, Rome and Corinth and Ephesus and uh, today Oxford, those people from uh, all their different tribes and nations are expected to worship together. They are still united. They are still recognisably brothers and sisters. They are still all disciples of Jesus Christ. Whatever language they, um, they, they, they uh, speak, whatever particular cultural traditions they have, one of the great privileges of being part of, uh, of, uh, of this church to have people from, uh, from different um, uh, backgrounds here. And um, I've been treated very, very generously, for instance, by um, some uh, Nigerians who are uh, no longer um, with us uh, who wanted a naming ceremony for their child. And um, I don't know what to do. I have no idea what um, uh, culturally they would, uh, they would do there. So they carefully and gently taught me what I needed to do and I obediently did it. They have all sorts of different <coughs> cultural expressions of Christianity but united as disciples of Jesus Christ. Now perhaps the main thing that Luke wants to anticipate 
as he describes how the Holy Spirit enables these people to speak in all sorts of different languages. There's this fundamental concept that he wants to send disciples out to every tribe and nation under heaven. The Holy Spirit's power is centrifugal. God drives people out. God sends people out across barriers of, of, of language and culture and class. He enables people actually to speak the language of others, not just physically, the tongue language of others, but culturally, to step across cultural gaps. Paul later says, says I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. We have a mission soon. Legacy. Will the Holy Spirit send us out across barriers to speak to people, to reach people? We live, in a, we live in a small city with a wonderfully global outreach. Will the Holy Spirit actually help us to find ways as a community of reaching across uh, cultural barriers to meet some of the people who pass through this city? I mean, in the year 2000, for instance... The Crown Prince of Bhutan was studying at Magdalen College. He's just been um, um, uh, endorsed as uh, leader of the nation of, of Bhutan. In the 1970s, um, on Argyle Street, can you believe it? Tony Blair is alleged to have lodged. And uh, uh, he was searching spiritually. As a young man, he was prepared to travel large distances to, uh, uh, to meet people who he thought could help him spiritually. Actually, at the same time, in the 1970s, a um, young man was coming to visit his older brother. The older brother was called Salim bin Laden. Osama came to visit him. Or... Uh, uh, let me just list a few others. Bill Clinton, Mahatma Gandhi, Indira Gandhi, King Abdullah of Jordan, Crown Prince Naruhito of Japan, Aung San Suu Kyi of Burma, Manmohan Singh, the Prime Minister of India, and even a young bearded chap who was uh, trying to work out what he believed called Rowan Williams was here. Imagine if we as a church had just touched one or two of those and they're just the named ones that you can spot because of their subsequent careers. We have thousands upon thousands of people in Oxford from, from every nation who pass through every year. And for whom Oxford was a formative experience. What an exciting place to be. What a wonderful place for the Holy Spirit to do his work. Will he do his work amongst us? I feel the need deeply.
Oh God, to help me to encourage me to give me that heart that rejoices in him, that knows him, that is guided by him. And so to find real power to do God's work. And I long for that for you. I'm excited by what God's uh, doing amongst us and I have um, no doubt that in lots of ways um, it has the mark of the Holy Spirit. There are people in whom God is stirring and that is really exciting. But I'm hungry, I am eager for more, aren't you? On this one day, 3,000 were converted. Let's not get above ourselves. That happens very occasionally. But I tell you, he can convert some, can't he? And he can change us. And he can use us. Surely that's the greatest thing to pray for, for 2007.